Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Ezekiel chapter 14, it's, it's actually a pretty easy chapter if you were like diagramming it. There's basically two sections to it. Verses 1 through 11 is one section and verse 12 through 23 is another section. And we'll take a look at the first part here. Ezekiel 14 verse 1. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man... These men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Now, the elders coming to sit before Ezekiel, this wasn't the first time that they had done that. If you recall back in chapter 8, the, the, the elders of Judah, you know, the, the elders among the exiles, they've come before to sit at Ezekiel in his home, and they're just waiting to hear, like, this guy's going to have another vision, he's going to do something strange. What's God going to say through him? Uh, they may have been regular attenders at Ezekiel's house. Well, here they are again, sitting before Ezekiel. They gave the impression, and I'm sure maybe Ezekiel had the impression, that they actually came to hear from the Lord. I say impression because God saw their hearts. And you remember back in chapter 8, as Ezekiel's sitting there with the, with the elders, or the elders are sitting there with Ezekiel, God takes Ezekiel in a vision back to Jerusalem. And uh, in that vision, he goes behind closed doors and he sees the idolatry that's taking place behind closed doors in the chambers of the temple. Something that nobody else saw, but God saw, and he wanted to reveal that to Ezekiel. Well, just as God had done that in chapter 8, here in chapter 11 now, God is revealing the hearts of the people that are there attending church, so to speak. Wouldn't that be awesome if God gave me the insight into what all is going on in your hearts this morning? <laughs> Probably like, no. <laughs> don't worry, I don't have that. Uh, but... Uh, what was in the hearts of the elders? Idolatry. Idolatry. Now, you know, when we think of idols, um, the first thought that always pops into my head is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? You, you just, you got this, you know, the, the people dancing and, you know, doing all the weird stuff and the snakes and the, the incense and all that stuff. And that's maybe a common thought of what an idol is. Well, God sees an idol differently. God sees an idol as anything that a man or a woman places in their heart that competes with worship of Him. Uh, any master passion that's governing your life other than God, really, it's an idol, and it's idolatry. And idolatry in the heart of God's people will inevitably cause them to stumble into outward sin because it starts in the heart. It always starts in the heart. Sin has its source in the heart of man. And that's why we have scriptures like Proverbs 4, verse 23. It says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. That's why Jesus said in Matthew fifteen nineteen, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. It all starts in the heart. 
And so these people here, these elders, were coming, so to speak, to church uh, to seek guidance from God for their lives. Or at least they gave that impression. But while their hearts, in their hearts, they were worshiping things other than God. And God says to Ezekiel here, do you think I'm going to speak to them as long as their idols remain in their hearts? You know, we have the answer in Scripture. I, I wrote, jotted down a few of them. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen says this, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Proverbs fifteen eight, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. Proverbs twenty one twenty seven, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when He brings it with wicked intent? Proverbs 28.9 One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So I think we already know what God's answer is going to be. Well, verse 4. Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart, because they are all estranged from me by their idols. God says, I'll answer them right, uh, all right, but it's going to be according to what their idolatry des- uh, deserves. Guys, the Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. It's a dangerous thing for you and I as God's people to come before God as hypocrites in a hypocritical fashion. Now, people in church might be fooled, um, but God isn't fooled. Case in point, do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? You know, back this when the church was just just starting and uh, people were getting saved and, and there were so many people getting saved and they were starting to share everything in common and people go, boy, let's go back to that New Testament church, you know, kind of communal living. You know, it only lasted for a little while. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't an ongoing thing. But at the time, boy, it seemed like a great thing. And everybody was coming together and they were sharing things. And, and so people that just, people felt, you know, the Lord laid it on their hearts and they would sell their homes or they sell property, whatever, whatever equity they have. And they would take that money and they would bring it and they would lay it at the apostles' feet to be distributed amongst everybody there, to be shared amongst everybody. Well, Ananias and Sapphira were part of the church at that time. They were regular church attenders probably. And they did something. They sold some property. And they came just like everybody else came. And they laid the money down at the apostles' feet. Now, if I had been there, I'd be, look, look at those spiritual people. What awesome. Look what they did. But the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter that they were idolaters. What were they worshiping? They worshiped mammon, money. And they had kept back part of the proceeds. And not that they couldn't have kept back the proceeds, but they had made an appearance that they had given it all. They were being hypocrites. And as a result, 
the Holy Spirit reveals it to Peter. Peter confronts both the husband and the wife, and they're both struck down by the Lord, and they die. And then they die there. And the Bible says, and I don't think it's an understatement: great fear fell on all the church. Can you imagine this morning? You know, you come here, you put your tithe in the tithe box, and I say, "Hey, you know, you didn't give your whatever, you know," and, and you fall down. That would strike fear in all of us. You know, God's a merciful God, but you know, that story in the Bible, I believe, it's recorded for your and my benefit too. That we should be careful not to come to God in a hypocritical fashion. It's a dangerous thing to do. In verse 5 there, God says He's going to capture them by their hearts. What does He mean by that? He means He's no longer going to let them continue in their hypocrisy. Because right now in their present condition, they're basically just playing church. And God says, you know what? In reality, you're estranged from me. You're alienated from me. And so we're going to deal with the heart. And so God's not going to let them continue in their hypocrisy. And you know, sometimes God in His mercy allows a person to continue in their hypocrisy. Not that He wants them to continue, but He's giving them room to repent and to turn around. But eventually, God will deal with that heart issue if you don't deal with it. And so, verse 6. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me, and sets up his idols in his heart, and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, and then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. God's answer to them, repent. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from the idols in your heart that lead you into sin. Now, I don't know, maybe you've had this experience Um, If you have, I hope it's never been with me, but let me share an experience that I think kind of maybe gives a little illustration. Um, A long time ago, remember we went through this uh, really uh, kind of a bad thing that happened in our family and... and, uh, it was we were living in California at the time and and uh, it was really it was devastating and and uh, I remember going to my pastor it was after church and uh, I said you know pastor can I speak to you and and I and I started telling him this just heavy thing and we were you know we were just a couple feet away from each other he was looking in my eyes looking in his eyes and having this intimate conversation I'm just share, I'm pouring out my heart to him and all of a sudden I noticed that he's looking past me and he sees some guy in the church behind him, behind me. He goes, hey, uh, Bill, or whatever the guy's name was, you know. And he just started talking to this guy. And then when he got done talking to the guy, he, 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 like, he like reconnected with me. Oh, okay, and, and, and you were saying? And, and, you know, at the time, I was pouring. I mean, I was just, I was, it was an open sore, you know. And I'm, I'm just bleeding before this guy, sharing it. And, uh, and then he did that, and I'm like, you know, now I have a great relationship with this guy. He's, he's, not a, he's not a bad person, but, you know, that was a mistake that he made, obviously. But, you know, when you and I are in an intimate relationship with the Lord, we're looking at his face, face to face. We're in intimate communion with him. And then when you and I look past him, 
and we start looking at an idol. We start looking at some other thing that's a, a passion. Maybe it's, maybe it's wealth or maybe it's sensual pleasure or maybe it's whatever, whatever it could be. And we start looking at that. I think God has that same feeling. It's like, wait a minute. What happened to that intimacy? Now you're, you know, and, and I think that's the same. I mean, that's what I think. That's the same feeling that he has. And so what he's telling the people here is turn away from those things. Turn back to me. Start looking at me again. Let's make eye contact. And I think that's what God wants to do with each one of us. Verse 9. And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel, and they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired, that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, says the Lord. Now, now the prophet that's being mentioned here is not Ezekiel. Because this prophet is one of the false prophets that was among the exiles. They were preaching peace and, you know, and safety and all this stuff. While in reality, God is saying, no, there's no peace. The destruction is coming because of your sin. But these false prophets were kind of easing people's minds and, you know, not mentioning the S word sin, you know, and, and, and just trying to comfort them. And they were speaking lies to the people because God says, I'm going to destroy that prophet. And he obviously didn't destroy Ezekiel. So it's not Ezekiel that he's speaking about. God is saying here, he's going to permit the false prophets to deceive the people. Now, wait a minute. Why would God allow somebody to deceive somebody else? I mean, that seems kind of like not Godish, right? I mean, it doesn't sound like God to do something like that. Why would God do that? God's not evil, and God doesn't want to deceive people, but why is he allowing these people to deceive, or these prophets to deceive the people? And the reason why is because the people were willfully ignoring God's word and they were just going to somebody that would tell them what they wanted to hear. And so God says, okay, if that's what you want, I'm going to give it to you. And God would permit those false prophets to deceive those other people. There's a concept, and it runs throughout the Bible. It's the same concept as when back in Exodus. Remember when, when Moses would come to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And, and, and Pharaoh, uh, you know, the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And said no, you know, or, or he'd say okay, and then he would change his mind and say no. You know, there's like seven times when when Moses went to uh, to Pharaoh. Half of those times, the Bible records that uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Another half of them, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, it doesn't mean that God planned to make. I'm just going to make Pharaoh this hard-hearted person. No, God was permitting him to continue in his sin and in his hardness because he was refusing to acknowledge God. And so there's a principle throughout Bible that the Lord will do that. If, if you're so stubbornly, willfully re, you know, rejecting God's word, he's going to say, okay, I'll let you just, you know, of course you're going to bear the consequences, but I'll let you go in that direction. But God says here, the prophet who speaks false prophecies, as well as the person who listens to their lies, they're both guilty. 
And they're both going to be judged the same. When God's judgment comes, the one who was deceived by the false prophet won't be able to say, hey, you know, I was deceived. No, it's because you willfully rejected God's word. So you're just as guilty as the false prophet. Now, God may sound like a killjoy. If, you know, if this is all you've read about God, it's like, man, he is really some hard person. And, you know, he's just meeting out judgment and condemnation on sinners. But look at verse 11. His purpose for punishing his people was that they would no longer stray from him. He wanted them to be his people and that he would be their God. God's whole purpose in all of this was to to woo their hearts back to him. It's not to destroy them, not to wipe them out and annihilate them. God's heart is to draw them back to him. But they've rejected him so many times now it's time. He's got to be, do some pretty severe things in order to get their attention and to get their hearts back to him. So now we get to the second part of the chapter, verse uh, 12. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread and send famine on it and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Interesting, these three people that are mentioned. Noah, we know Noah, right? He was a righteous man who lived at the time of the flood. Daniel, Daniel was a righteous young man at this time. He was alive at the time of this prophecy, living in Babylon. Um, and so he was a contemporary of Ezekiel, but he was a, he was a young guy. He, was, he came out in that first wave of captives of, that went from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he was just a teenager at that time. And if, you know, we'll, get to, we'll talk about it when we get to the book of Daniel. But, but he was a righteous man, a young man. And... Uh, he became a friend and a trusted advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar. And though he was a young man at the time, he was highly regarded by both men and God. Age doesn't matter. You know, if you're walking with the Lord, God can use you at any age. Well, and we got Job. Job was a righteous man who lived after the flood, but prior to Abraham. In fact, and I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know for sure, but it's possibly he could be the Jobab that's described in Genesis chapter 10. Some people think he is. I don't know. But in any event, these three men had one thing in common, and that was that God considered them righteous in their generations. Now, the nation of Judah, they have been persisting in their unfaithfulness. I mean, this has been going on for many generations. They've been sinning against the Lord. And God's announcing that He's about to bring destruction on them for their sin. And the people, they figured God would not destroy Jerusalem because all the righteous people that were living among them in the city. You know, they were counting on other people's righteousness to somehow help them escape judgment. Kind of a weird concept. Um, You know, instead of the, you've heard the phrase, guilt by association, these people believed in righteousness by association. And God says, you know, if Noah, Daniel, and Job, those three righteous men, if they were in Jerusalem, they would only be able to deliver themselves 
by their righteousness. Verse 15. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they empty it, and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered, and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on that land, and say, Sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, Even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Even righteous Noah, Daniel, and Job would deliver only themselves By their righteousness, God says. And I find it interesting that they wouldn't even be able to deliver sons and daughters, just themselves. Now, that concept, we're going to delve into it more fully into chapter 18. But the point here that God's trying to get across, you can't ride on the spiritual coattails of another person. God does not have grandchildren In the kingdom of heaven. I've got grandchildren. God doesn't have any grandchildren. God only has sons and daughters. Because each of us, young and old, we are all responsible for our own relationship with the Lord. I think Christian children, you know, children that grew up in Christian homes, they need to understand this truth. There was a point in my life, I grew up in a Christian home, and there was a point in my life where it's like, you know... uh, I have to make an. I have to decide. Do I believe in Jesus Christ? Is He my Lord and Savior? You know, I'm not going to go to heaven because my parents are Christians. I have to answer for myself. And there came that point in my life where I needed to come to that realization. And each and every child needs to come to that realization that they need their own personal relationship and spiritual walk with Jesus. Likewise, and I think this is an important point too. Parents need to grasp this truth. You need to understand that while you're raising your children in the fear of the Lord and you're, you know, you're, you're, they're in a Christian home and maybe while they're under your control, they're doing the things that you're telling them to do, don't assume that your children believe what you believe. Don't make that assumption. It's a fatal mistake. Don't assume that your children have your values just because they're in your home. Don't make that assumption. I, and the reason why I say that emphatically, um, I read a book a few years ago by Ken Ham and uh, Britt Beamer, and the book is called Already Gone. And I don't know if any of you have read that. If you've not read it and you're a parent or soon-to-be parent, whatever, I encourage you to read this book because it was an eye-opener to me. What they did in this book was they interviewed youth and college-age kids and they didn't and people that were christians now you can say everybody calls themselves a christians they only interviewed people that were from evangelical protestant churches 
people that were like claiming to be born again Christians, not just like Christian in name, you know, nominal type of people, but people that grew up in Christian evangelical churches. And they asked, they had a series of questions about these youth. What did they believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You know, what did they believe? Is the Bible the word of God? And it was shocking to find out how little the children, the youth had in common with the adults, even though they were going to very good biblical-based churches. They've been going to Sunday school all their lives or youth group, and, you know, they grew up in Christian homes. It was amazing, and it just opened my eyes at that time. It's like, wow, I didn't realize it. You know, and we make this assumption that our kids have this relationship with the Lord, you know, uh, and, you know, we've learned from our mistakes. I remember, you know, we went to a church, and we we're looking for the church that has the kids' program. A lot of people do that. They come here and go, oh, there's not much of a kids' program here. And so, you know, and, and, and so uh, I remember getting our kids into a kids' program because, you know, a program, at least they're getting around Christian kids and they're getting, you know, good stuff. And, and uh, that was a mistake. What I had ignored was their own personal relationship, and I needed to focus on that. Um, you know, one of the things that was brought out in that book was that, uh, you know, the kids were getting, you know, very good, solid teaching in these classes, Sunday school classes and stuff, and hearing good messages in the church, but they weren't prepared for when they went to college. And when they went to college, there's an outright, you know, there's a, just, it's a spiritual warfare going on in colleges. You know, you have atheistic professors that are just trying to tear down the faith of believers. And, and, these, and, and if your children don't have a solid foundation and you're not sure of their solid foundation and you send them off, they're, they're like, you know, ducks in a pond waiting to be, you know, you know picked off by the enemy. And so it's so important and I, maybe I'm overstressing this, but I don't think so. It's so important for parents, especially, to grasp this truth while raising your children. Verse 21. For thus says the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence, to be cut off from man, uh, to cut off man and beast from it. So here we have these four forms of judgment coming upon Jerusalem, the sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. These all would be fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. Verse 22, Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done it, says the Lord God. So here we have God's promise again of saving a remnant of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There'd be another a final wave of exiles coming, and there'd be a small group, you know, because the rest of them were killed, or they died of famine or diseases and, and all that that was prophesied. So there'd be this remnant that would come back, and God says that their ways and their doings, in other words, how they lived their lives, would bring comfort to their fellow exiles already in Babylon. 
Why? Well, because these people will have acknowledged their sinfulness. They will have recognized God's judgment, and, and, and they, uh, they will be people who have cast down their idols. We sing that one song, you know, cast down my idols. I love that song. They will be people who have cast down their no longer idolaters, people who have acknowledged their sin, sinfulness, and they're wholeheartedly serving the Lord God. Their ways and their doings are going to bring comfort to the other exiles. I heard this phrase, and I love it. They're monuments of His mercy. Man, I, you know, I look at me, and I, man, I'm a monument of God's mercy because I, I don't deserve to be here. It's only by God's grace and His mercy. You know, each one of us, you know, that have a testimony, and all of us have a testimony, really. If you have a relationship with the Lord, you have a testimony. We're all monuments of God's, of God's mercy, excuse me. Well, these monuments of His mercy, their lives would be a testimony to their fellow exiles. And their lives would actually have an impact on the exiles. They'd bring comfort to the exiles. In what way? Well, they, the returning, you know, after 70 years, these, all these exiles that are, will be alive at the time, they're going to return back to, they're going to be allowed to return back to Jerusalem. And as a nation, they no longer were idolaters. They no longer worshipped the idol, the pagan idols of the land. The, the, those exiles had an impact on them, and it, it was an impact that changed them. Wouldn't you like that to be your life, man? You know, that, that you have your life because, because of the way you live your life and the way you do things and, and just how you are and, and, and the fact that you are a monument of God's mercy, that you impact others, and it affects them to where they start following the Lord. Man, that, I hope that's my life story. Well, we're going to continue on here into chapter 15. It's a, it's a short chapter. Verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? The, uh, it's kind of a rhetorical question because the answer is no. Instead... It is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate, because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. This parable of the vine and the vine branches and the, the vineyard, it's kind of a theme that runs through scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 5, we have the parable of the vineyard. And what took place in there is that God is the, the person who owns the land. He plants a vineyard. And we find out from the, from the Bible that the vineyard is symbolic of Israel. God planted a vineyard which was Israel. He removed the rocks. He took away all the briars, the thorns, and all that stuff. He tilled the soil. He, he got the soil just, just ready uh, for planting. And then he took the choicest grapes 
or grapevines, I should say, and planted them in the soil. Then he built a hedge around it. You know, he, he put a, a barrier cage around it to keep the wild animals from eating the grapes. I mean, he did everything he possibly could to allow good fruit to grow up from this grapevines in this vineyard. But in verse 7 of chapter 5 in Isaiah, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord is the house, is the host, excuse me, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. You see, God expected good fruit to be produced, but instead, there's nothing but sour and wild grapes. That was in Isaiah. Now in Ezekiel here, he picks up on the theme of the vineyard, and it's kind of a continuing, a running theme here. Because now, it's kind of like after the fact. There's The fruit's not being produced. Well, the vines are not producing fruit, and so can he at least, you know, maybe he can make something useful out of the wood, you know, to take the vines themselves. And I think, don't, isn't there some craft people that do grapevine type stuff and you know, they must not have done that in Ezekiel's day, but apparently, and I think with good cause, grapevines are not good for furniture. They're, you know, they're not sturdy, and I assume they probably rot really good, really quick. Um, you know, you can't build any kind of support with them. I certainly wouldn't build a house out of grapevines. Uh, you know, you can't even put, make a peg out of it to hang a cup on it, you know, basically is what he's saying here. In other words, there's nothing useful for those vines, if they're not producing fruit. If it won't produce fruit, it's good. For, it's not even, even the vines themselves are not good for anything. They might as well just be burned up because they're not doing anything. Jesus picks up on that same theme in, New, in the New Testament, actually in a couple places, but we're just going to look at one place. It's in John chapter 15. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you and I abide in the Lord, if we're in that relationship in the Lord where we're making eye contact with Him, you know, there's no other idols, there's nothing, we're, we're in that intimate relationship with the Lord, we're going to produce fruit. You don't even have to strive at it. You're going to produce fruit. And He says, apart from Him, we can do nothing. So, in other words, when we're not abiding in Him, not only are we in a period of not producing fruit, but just like the vine branches here in chapter 15, there is no other use. There is, there is no other usefulness for us. Unless you and I are producing fruit in our lives, we're not only unproductive, but we're useless for the Lord's purposes. That, that sounds kind of severe, but that's the truth. 
you know, sometimes we go, well, you know, I'm in this phase. I'm just not really walking that close to the Lord. And, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, and we, we have this lax attitude about it. Well, the fact of the matter is we have to be producing fruit. Because if we're not, we're not doing anything for the Lord. We're useless for the Lord. What's the kind of fruit that the Lord wants to see produced in you and I? It's in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. What is it? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit that God wants to see in your and my lives. And so, you know, when you and I, when we're in that intimate relationship with the Lord, again, you don't even have to strive. You're, gonna, you're just going to produce fruit as long as you're abiding in the Lord. You know, and there's no, there's no, you know, indwelling sins and there's nothing that's taking your eyes off the Lord. As long as you're in that communication with the Lord, you're going to produce fruit. You don't have to stress out about it, you know. I don't, you never hear a, a, a fruit tree or a vine going, ah! you know, and there's a, there's, a, there's a grape, you know. They don't struggle at it, right? You've seen the bumper sticker. Well, I won't mention that bumper sticker, but, you know, fruit happens. <laughs> fruit happens. It happens when you're abiding in the Lord. But when you and I take our eyes off the Lord, that's when the fruit stops producing. And you can only go so long. And God in his mercy will only allow you to go so long. Because he wants that intimate relationship. He wants you and I to bear fruit for him. And so he's going to do, you know, he's going to give you room. Because he wants, even today, he's given you room to get your life right with the Lord. But if you continue to spur and ignore him, he's going to do something drastic. Not to, not to wipe you out, but again, to draw you to him. And it might be painful. No, you don't want that. We want to produce fruit for the Lord. And so this morning, we're going to close the service here, but this morning, I just encourage you, you know, we're ending 2013. In fact, I think this, yeah, this is the last message of the year. You know, Let's look back at our lives this past year. Let's examine our hearts and, and see, you know, maybe just spend some time with the Lord and say, Lord, you know, have I drifted from you? Have I taken my eyes off you in any way? And if he reveals to you that you have, there's just one thing you need to do. Repent. Turn away from it. Turn back to him. And, man, you could start 2014 producing fruit. It's that simple. God's so gracious. He doesn't say, okay, well, you know, you, 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 know, you blew it last time. I'm, I'm not going to reuse you. No. He, he gives us every opportunity again to start producing fruit again. And so let's make 2014 a year of, of fruitfulness for us as individuals. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, and pray.